Hey, you were so here at George Mason University. I'm here with Luciana Zest from Towson University in Maryland. Uh, just about an hour's drive from where I am, so we could have probably done this in person. Uh, but we're here to discuss the Weight Inclusive Thinking Project. Uh, and the way we did this uh, is we pulled from two papers. One was uh, Luciana's um, Delphine Hanna lecture, uh, which is by the way, an amazing paper, very well written, awesome. Uh, and then uh, another one from Kinesiology Review that talks about the same project, but we're here to talk about the project. I'm going to link to both of those papers in the project uh, in the notes. Uh, so, Dr. Zest, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. So I'm wondering if you can start off with the story kind of behind, like where, did, how did this emerge, the Weight Inclusive Thinking Project? Where does that come from? So this, this started around uh, fall of 2019. I was a faculty at uh, Cal State uh, Chico at the time and had a colleague working with me there, Dr. Simi Lee. Uh, I am in uh, pedagogy. She was a faculty in exercise and sports psychology, and uh, we are having conversations about some challenges we've noticed in both of our fields, right? I had just finished a study on girls' physical activity, and I had noticed that there was like a prevalence in the literature of body dissatisfaction. Um, with my interactions with these girls in that study, I noticed that there was some misunderstanding on what being active means uh, for these girls. And Dr. Lee was, was doing the same thing. She was doing research with college athletes on microaggressions. And she was uh, also reporting the same issue with appearance and body dissatisfaction, right? So we begin to talk about like what kind of materials are out there for us to educate these future professionals on those issues, right? Um, I've personally struggled with body dissatisfaction and weight preoccupation for quite a long time and started to notice that uh, a lot of messages I received about bodies came from physical activity-related context that I've engaged in my life. So we, we, we got together and we said, well, how can we do those materials? And at the same time, another faculty member who had just left Chico State, uh, her name is Dr. Dawn Clifford. She's currently at Northern Arizona University. She is in nutrition. And she was involved in this movement called Health at Every Size. So she introduced that work to us. And we said, hey, we want to develop this educational materials for these professionals, how we go about it. And, you know, because of proximity, we thought that we, it would be a good idea to begin with campus rack staff and, and, and employees, right? And so we went and we, we did a needs assessment to see, you know, what are their needs. And I can talk more, more about that later and send the link. We published two papers out of this needs assessment. And what are we going to do? I then got a sabbatical leave at Chico State to create the our first educational material, which is called Weight Inclusive Thinking in Fitness Spaces with FITS. This is a two-hour self-paced online course 
that is based on the health of every size paradigm. And we also use the social ecological model to organize the strategies uh, we found in the literature to create fitness spaces more inclusive. So together, my sabbatical, we wrote the content for this course. And we needed some people to kind of like, we got a grant from Nakahi that funded this and their uh, interdisciplinary grant, the Don Hallison grant. And with that money, we were able to hire, you know, folks that are from the body liberation movement to look at our content and say, are we representing their voices? Are we saying, you know, how is our content? And then we partnered with a group of instructional designers who helped us actually make the course mm -hmm. online. Um, Fast forward, course was ready. We piloted at three rec centers uh, in the West Coast, and the results were promising. So we did pre-post, and uh, the results saw significant improvement in those exercise professionals' anti-fat attitudes. And this paper was accepted for the International Journal of Kinesiology and Higher Ed, so it should be coming soon. And after that, we then created a control course. Right? Mm -hmm. Now let's against the control course where we created another two-hour self-paced course. This is on motivation techniques for physical activity. And with the grants from NURSA, which is the National Intramural Recreation and Sport Association, the organization that oversees campus rec, we were able to then do a randomized control study with rec centers across the country. The results are also promising, so we also saw significant uh, improvements in participants' attitudes towards fatness compared with the control course. We are now collecting follow-up data, so we want to see do those changes persist after three months, so we are collecting that data. So that's the story of of our project. Now, uh, the goal is that we have, you know, weight-inclusive thinking for other populations. So my next goal is weight-inclusive thinking in physical education. We just launched a collaborative weight-inclusive thinking um, to gather professionals to different areas looking at that. So weight-inclusive thinking is the core, and from that we want to create various educational materials to populations yeah. so that are health related. Why why did you start with the rec centers first? I mean you're you're a physical education teacher educator. I know you talked with other other colleagues from different areas. Why did you do it in that way and go rec centers first and then now moving into more PE uh, and PE teachers versus the other way and starting with PE? What was the rationale behind that? I think it was the nature of our collaboration, right? So I, I write in the paper, in, in, in the Delfina Hanna paper, I had to move out. I have to zoom out for physical education. And, and, and it, because if I hadn't, I would never have heard about health of every size, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was with this group of, of faculty from other areas that I was able to learn more, you know, and learn about weight stigma and what it is and how it shows up. So. I had to 
remove myself momentarily from physical education, but continue with physical activity promotion, which is one of my areas of interest. I'm certified in public health. I have a physical activity in public health certificate as well. So I had to remove myself for a little bit to that. And the, the rec center part, I, it wasn't the, the idea of proximity or having access to those participants in a way that for us as faculty member was doable and feasible, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah. one of our major goals to reach fitness professionals in the community, which will challenge. And during the process of doing this work, that's how I, okay, there's a need here in PE, right? I had to go out to actually even see that there was a need in yeah. for that. Yeah. You know, yeah, because sure. it wasn't something that wasn't much talked about yet. There's some papers, I've looked at it. Once I did that, I came back, I did a scoping review to see, you know, what are physical educators' attitudes towards, you know, higher weight children. Mm-hmm. So, so where, are, where we are here in terms of that, and that paper is on the review. But I think that was why we started that. And I'm like, okay, there's a need here. Let me come back and start from scratch, which I am just now collecting the needs assessment data in Fizad yeah. to replicate the process. Okay. So you have a bunch of different concepts between the two papers that I think are important um, as we dive into the details of it. And so I'm wondering if you can explain some of the concept, uh, concepts to us and then uh, how they influence experience of youth and physical activity settings. Now, I didn't put this in a question that I was going to ask, but I wanted to bring up the term fat. You use fat in, uh, in the papers and you say fat students or... Um, so how, how is that term used? How is it accepted? Um, and how uh, should, should people be using the word fat? to describe overweight children? That, that's a very good question. And, and I think I don't have a straightforward answer to that. I'm gonna talk about what I know about this. Um, so the first thing I'd like to acknowledge is that uh, so fat people belong to a marginalized group, right? They are discriminated against they, mm-hmm. in the workplace, in education, in family, in society in general. I do not belong to the marginalized group and don't have their experiences so that I want to acknowledge that first. So the second piece is um, there is debate, right? Uh, I think there's just recently, I was this week, I saved it, haven't read it yet, but there's some consensus in using person first in addressing larger body people in terms of children with obesity or children with overweight. So that's mm-hmm. one way to go. Uh, to do this work, I try to immerse myself within a group of fat advocates, particularly the Association for Association for Sci for Association for Size Diversity and Health, mm-hmm. ASDA. And in in learning uh, more about their work and their advocacy for uh, the rights of uh, larger body people, I've learned that um, there is a, a movement to reclaim the word fat, right, from, from being an insult to being a descriptor, right? Mm-hmm. A fat person has been person, a tall person, a short person. So that's one way to present this. Obviously, each person would have a preference. Yeah. Um, I've heard from 
some fat advocates would avoid the terms obesity and overweight, with that being because they are based on the problematic BMI scale. Uh, so out of respect, I prefer using uh, fat at some points, larger body, higher weight individuals. But I don't think, you know, I can say, hey, let's use this. And I think this is an area of debate and, excuse me, and conversation that's yeah. going on in the community. But what's important here is to listen to them, right? And to um, Yes, listen yeah. to your voices. Yeah. And I think one of one of the papers that you cited talked about, or it was an organization in here that talked about how the the term fat has been like taken back in by people who identify as that, just as the word queer was taken back in through, and it was an insult at some point, and people in the LGBTQ community, some people have readopted that word to say, it's not an insult. This is a descriptor of who I am. Um, so I thought that was a that was a great uh, great way to explain it. Um, so let's let's go back to the other uh, definitions. Uh, one of them was precarity, and you cite a lot um, uh, David Kirk's book from 2020 about what precarity is and how it works in physical education. Can you kind of give a brief overview of that term? What it what does it mean? So this is a term that has been helping me actually understand what's going on in the world, right? And uh, in that book, uh, you mentioned it. Well, so, so David Kirk talked about precarity being used in social sciences and, and being a term to describe sort of the neoliberalism practices associated with work. So work being more temporary, uncertain, low paid, mm -hmm. and the fact that this not only has economical consequences for families, also affects their health and well-being, both uh, because of living in uncertainty, because of living in unstable conditions, uh, that translates into affecting their health and well-being, uh, the idea of health care being tied to employment and all of that, right? So you, you add to, to, to that, to the constant anxiety, all the other uh, traumatic events that we have been through, including the pandemic, the increasing violence, the increased economic stability. So the, it, it, to me, it helps understand exactly where we are in terms of a global context right now, like living in a precarious uh, state. And, and it's interesting that he explains that why we all might live in a precarious state some people in particular will live in precarity, right, depending on where they are in mm -hmm. social economic status, in uh, racialized groups, uh, minoritized groups. We see now in the U.S. Uh, increasing laws and legislation, restricting voices and rights for people, and how that also would play into that sense of uncertainty and instability that we are going through. Uh, what about uh, terms like weight stigma and weight-centric narratives? What what do those mean? So weight stigma, you know, they they, they, they can be defined and you know the, the rejections, the the discrimination, uh, the the devaluation of people that do not conform to what we say normal, you know, or socially accepted body size, right? It's it, it's it, it's a construct and involves. Um, you know, stereotypes, prejudice, and, and result in discrimination. And they are based in 
uh, misguided beliefs that, you know, are formed into the idea that, you know, anybody can lose weight, right? If, if they want, they, they could just lose weight. And they don't because they are, uh, you know, somehow deficient, right, or, you know, lazy or uh, don't have motivation or there's something wrong with them, right? And, and, and those beliefs are stigmatized, right? So we begin to see people in larger bodies uh, in that way. And that, it's, again, it's a multi-layer construct. For example, there's studies that looked into how fat characters are portrayed in um, animations, right, for children, and they're typically the villain or they are unhappy or have no friends or have no romantic engagement, right? So when you start to seeing that, and those are things that we learn, right? And at the same time, there is uh, this push from this is the one desirable body type that is in the media. And, and that also contributes to the stigmatization of individuals who are uh, in larger bodies. So that's weight stigma. And then you have weight-centric approaches to health promotion. They see, they are centered on weight, right? So they see weight loss. They, first of all, sees weight as a determinant of health or an indicator of health, right? Mm -hmm. So your health is determined by your weight or your health, or your weight is an indicator of your health. And then the other part will be, okay, so weight loss is the solution for any illness, right? And there are several reports and studies showing that patients, right, attempting to get care, uh, at times they are prescribed weight loss from their other conditions, right? And that ties in into what is, what are folks' definition of health mm -hmm. um, to begin with. Yeah. And and then there's one uh, or a couple more the the terms weight inclusivity and then body size diversity. Can you define those? Well, the idea of weight inclusivity is the idea that any individual, regardless of their body size, they uh, deserve to uh, be offered opportunities and access to care, to health supporting behaviors. Right. I love the term access. Right, we, we, you know, we can talk all day long, go for a walk, but if there's no sidewalk or if the neighborhood mm -hmm. isn't safe, right, mm -hmm. or if you, I mean, so, you know, we, we want to provide, offer access um, and care to people of all body size. So that's what health at every size means, right? It means that everybody has access, can have access uh, to health supporting behaviors, to health care. Uh, regardless of the way. So we want to be inclusive of uh, all body sizes and that people don't have to lose weight to live or to participate in society right. or you know, to, to participate in physical activity. And equally important that we cannot assume that, uh, that people who are active are being active to lose weight. People are active for all the reasons that we all know. Mm -hmm. That's weight inclusivity. Body size diversity is the idea that, you know, if we all ate the same thing every day and exercise the same amount, we would still be different because bodies are different, mm -hmm. right? And because there is this ideal body that is presented to us in the media, right? We, you know, if we go about our daily lives at the grocery store, uh, in school, we're going to see that people are different, that bodies are different. But that has not been celebrated. It has changed it, I think, over the past 10 years somewhat. Now we see in commercials, we see 
artists who we see folks with different body size portrayed, and I cannot emphasize how important that is uh, because we are all different, right? There is diversity in body size and in body shape, and we want to celebrate and acknowledge that uh, rather than try to fit everyone in whatever mold um, society is determining. Yeah, and that's that's the issue of teaching the calories in, calories out model, right? Is that you can you eat this and you expend this and you're going to be fit and you're going to be skinny. You just have to maintain energy balance. And there's been some research against that. Do you uh, do you discuss that at all in in this in this project about like this uh, energy balance mindset? Is that the way people should be learning about? caloric intake? So I'm not an exercise physiologist. Uh, we, we go over it uh, in, in, in the course, uh, probably this part into it. Um, we know that there is a, a several problems with the calories in, calories out um, model because bodies are different, because it's, there are other factors influencing body size, such as genetics, metabolism. Uh, obviously, the idea that the, the foods that we eat are influenced by a variety of factors, not, you know, oh, I want to eat healthy, what does that even mean? And who has access to this food or that food? Mm -hmm. So I think when we are teaching particularly children, I would stay away from that. I would stay away from, you know, healthy and healthy. Uh, you know, I prefer nutritious food. I prefer to talk about nutrients. Uh, we know that counting calories is a risk factor for eating disorders. And um, so I would be careful and mindful with that, with the uh, calories in and calories out. There are other approaches to eating that might be uh, preferred, but also, one of the emphasis in our course are the social determinants of health, right? The idea that health is not determined by health behaviors, but rather the health behaviors, we can only practice health supporting behaviors if we have access to the conditions, right? Yeah. And who has access to the conditions. Uh, that's an important piece of it, and especially when we are talking about children and yeah. adolescents, right? Who have very little um, a choice into what is available to them in terms of food, in terms of environment, in terms of physical activity. So we want to be careful about yeah. what we tell them. Name, name a third grader who goes shopping for themselves and has all the healthy eating habits and like <laughs> menu plans. Like that's, that's what your parents give you. That's what your parents' budget can afford. And that's what you eat at home. Uh, yeah, I, I was just, I was disappointed to see like, uh, Virginia, the state that I teach in, they doubled down on energy balance and they just redid their um, content standards or the uh, SOLs, standards of learning. And we don't align with um, the Shape America standards, so our standards are different. But standard number five is energy balance. And it talks about calories in, calories out, all throughout, like from not maybe not kindergarten all the way explaining that but it's consistent throughout all k-12 to grades and our our university our fed program we wrote in a letter when they asked for feedback and we talked about how this is a really problematic way to explain it and 
standards are out there. They're going to be that standard for the next seven years. And I think it's going to be very problematic and, and it's going to be very, I mean, it's already outdated, but now looking at it for the next seven years, the students in Virginia, that's how they learn. That's what they're going to learn about is the energy in, energy out, unfortunately. But um, I love that you wrote the, that you wrote the letter. Um, there is a researcher in Canada, Shelley Russell-Nile, that uh, I think it's her, but she wrote a letter to, to this is in Canada, talking about their standards and how they address and the potential harm that it causes, yeah. right? In, in our profession, I rarely see anybody talking about eating disorders. And number one, they are prevalent among athletes. You know, num number two, some of the things that we teach might be, again, just the calories in and out, like just counting calories, right? We know by research that can lead to obsession, that can lead to eating disorders. And there are so many, why are we not focusing on nutrients yeah. rather than, yeah. and a big part of all of this is the diet industry, which is worth $7 billion, right? And uh, they profit, but their, their model is just, you know, it, it's a model that doesn't work. They sell their products, their products obviously don't work, and then they blame on the customer, and the customer mm -hmm. keeps coming for more. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't work because you didn't do it right. Maybe you didn't find it. Maybe of your energy balance, right? You didn't do it right. right. So it, it's your fault again. And that's probably easier than creating the conditions, right? I, I say all the time. You make this education mandated nationally. You mandate research. We solve a lot of problems, right? But it's probably easy to go and change the standards to um, yeah. calories in and calories out. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so you explained that the project started with a needs assessment to explore the attitudes of fitness professionals toward health and weight and the needs of the rec centers in this context. And so I'm wondering, can you share just briefly about what you found in that uh, that stage of research? Yes, I'm gonna put the citations here for you on the chat of those papers. Um, so, so we used a tool that uh, this person has developed for their dissertation and it was a, it was a tool developed to assess folks attitudes towards health and weight in light of the health and every size paradigm, right? And what I think I'm most finding is there were still misconceptions, right, about health and weight. And again, the connection about uh, weight equals health, weight being a, sort of a weight-centric perspective of health and weight, which is very prevalent and dominant. It's a lot of what we learn. Um, and, and we hear pushback on this, right? Are you saying that fat people are healthy? Is that what you're saying, right? That, mm -hmm. that there's a common pushback. And first of all, it's uh, let's look at health holistically, right? Not being just physical or absence of disease, but holistically, especially, I mean, now if we're not looking into mental health, like, and so that's a, a starting point for that. But so there was some misconceptions into their perceptions on the relationship between health and weight. So that's the first paper. Then the, then the other part of it, we wanted to know what are the things that they are already doing in their rec centers to create inclusive climates because folks are doing things. Right? So we wanted to know what are the things that you are already doing and what are some of the things that you like to do or you like to see some of the barriers. So that's the paper too. And we use the sociological model again. And we found that, you know, while, you know, 
participants. And in this study, we surveyed campus reg leaders, right? And while folks are already doing some things, there was a, and a misalignment into, oh, you know, there are simple things that can be done, mm -hmm. right? Like offering training and there are things that can be done, but it seems that folks are often looking for the big things, right? That right. make the showers accessible, which is a major project. And mm -hmm. what are the chances that will be done? And if you will, it would take a lot. So yeah. how can we then say, hey, we still want to do things, but we want to do things that are more realistic. We can aim for those projects, but we can also, you know, not name our classes, you know, but we still something mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. that or stop telling people that hey let's burn out that halloween candy uh yeah. on the exercise bike right so there are small things that we can do that can make this more inclusive for all people because this is not just about how can we include you know larger body people this is how do we make a climate that is healthy for everybody yeah. in terms of inclusivity yeah absolutely um and there's a there's a good podcast about this. Um, Carrie Saffron turned me on to this. It's called Maintenance Phase. I don't know if you've heard about it. Uh, if, so if you're okay with an F-bomb every like two minutes, it's a really good podcast. I haven't put it in into my classes because <laughs> it is... I, I enjoy listening to it, but it's it's very vulgar, and I'm like, ah, uh, the the balance of me putting this in an education class, and then, but they have a lot of good facts, and in that, they talked about how they've done uh, not them specifically, but they pull up a lot of research that says, like, cancer survivors, if people are very thin, they often they're less often they they survive cancer versus overweight people because cancer is a wasting disease. And so the overweight person that has more body fat on them can w survive the wait time for the chemo to work and then they survive versus others. And they and they poke holes, obviously, like they're coming at it from a very different angle. And I'm sure that there could be a longer conversation about it. But and I and I don't remember the, exactly the episode number, but it's it was sometime in 2021 that they talk about um, uh, weight discrimination and fat bias and. I just thought it was a really, really good, um, good way to, it, it completely changed my mind about a lot of ways that I think about things. So, uh, all right. So let's go on to the, yeah, let's go on to the literature review. I'm listening to that. Say it again. Sorry. Seth, I'm glad you're listening to that. Aubrey Gordon, she's, she's great. And, uh, yeah. Uh, we have a lot to learn in this area. It's mm -hmm. complex, right? And yeah. uh, learning yeah. yeah. And, and you talked about earlier on in, uh, in the podcast and in the paper, you talked about like you struggling with uh, like body image and weight dissatisfaction. And like I, I grew up with a sport of wrestling that that's all it is. You're just constantly like every single day you're stepping on a scale. And once I got done with wrestling, like, I don't think I weighed myself for like a year and now it's like I have a scale at my house I hate it I think about it all the time and I know like there are things in my life that make me less able to be physically active like I have a full-time job and I'm potty training my two-year-old like those are things that take so much time and like I don't feel good about how I how I look how I feel 
because I'm comparing myself to when I was 165 pounds as a uh, <laughs> college wrestler. Like those are those are so different. And and you know, I, I remember when I was in New York, and it was the first time that I hadn't wrestled in 15 years, and I put on weight. And I remember there was uh, there's a couple like acquaintances, friends that I see, and they're like whoa Risto what's going on man you're letting yourself go and I'm like how do you think that that's like the appropriate thing to say like I'm gonna think about that for four months you said it as like this passing joke thing but you know those things like really like get to people and even though people might be very fit they still deal with that and it might be an obsession or a reason why they exercise and they don't do it for their health benefits necessarily they just need to continue looking the way that they've looked instead of thinking about i'm healthy like i can run a marathon or whatever so i mean there's just so much to unpack yeah i mean absolutely um yeah i think that the definition of of health and and why we move um reading about reading research on physical education teachers and their relationship with their bodies, right? You're going to find that there is this notion that, you know, we age, but the bodies change. Mm -hmm. Life circumstances such as having children or moving or changing jobs or getting ill or that are beyond of our control or, or getting injured. And that happened to me, which well, I was I was thin, looked super fit, but had a stress fracture. And, you know, well, nobody sees that, but that's yeah. uh, told all my health as well, right? So I had to redefine my relationship with exercise. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think this brings me to what are we teaching children about their relationship with exercise and how bodies change, right? And and, and how we can accept that, right? And, and respect that mm-hmm. and and respect that in, in ourselves and in other people, right? Um, but society is cruel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we, with, with all the bodies and, um, and how do we treat them? And I, I think there is work to be done in our field in in that for us physical educators for the children that we serve uh we we've got um the work in this area for sure yeah so let's jump to the literature review um in that you use a socio-ecological model as a framework uh, now aaron santeo's come on and talked about this model previously in the podcast so i can put that link in there for people who want to kind of just get an overview of it um, but can you share how you use that approach to organize the recommended strategies you found in the literature? Yeah, so I mean, I love the social ecological model to me, help understand complex things so much better, including physical activity promotion, right? But we looked into stigma from a social ecological approach, and, and particularly a model that uh, Cook and colleagues proposed uh, in 2014. And what they did, they simplified the initial social ecological model into three levels of influence. And I think that's helpful because you, you still account for all the you know, major uh, uh, levels of influence that, and because the stigma is a multi-level mo- uh, construct, obviously interventions to tackle that construct 
need to be multi-layered, right? Mm-hmm. The, the more layers we can hit, the more chances we are to be successful in our intervention. So when we went in the literature to look at, hey, what do people have done there, right? We found a lot, and we say, how do we organize that? And we found that this this model was, was helpful. So we looked at the intrapersonal, the interpersonal, and then the structural level, and that was very helpful for us into like here are the strategies that you can do at this level at this and noticing that one level will influence another level yeah. right if I make a change at the structural level that will obviously impact other levels mm-hmm. uh, so that's why we we chose and especially because that that paper that we use is talking about stigma right and how stigma operates in this multi-layered fashion. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we can go through the main recommendations you found in the literature in, in those ecological levels. So what uh, what did you find in the intrapersonal level? Yeah, so at the intrapersonal level, we are looking at strategies that target the way people think, feel, and behave, right? So it's targeting the individual. Um, there are two parts here. One we didn't address. One part is to address... Uh, individuals who feel stigmatized, who have what we call internalized stigma, right? So, so we could do interventions for them, but we're talking about professionals. So, how do we can uh, impact the way professionals think, feel, and behave towards individuals with larger bodies, right? And we uh, identify, right, that obviously developing knowledge, skills, and attitudes. So, as you said, right, you listen to this podcast, you're learning more actual facts, right? So, learning about the relationship between health and weight learning about weight stigma, learning about the social determinants of health, learning about actually what are the factors that influence weight, what does the research say, right? It's When I was doing my dissertation, I was uh, studying, you know, um, adolescents and weight, and I was very surprised that the research wasn't conclusive, that physical activity improves weight. And I was, like, shocked because at the time I didn't know much, right? So... You know, when we actually go and begin learning things, that's when we begin to kind of change, right, our mindset. The second part is developing skills, right? How do I now interact with them different, right? How do I make modifications? How do I change my language? What are the things that I can actually do in my, um, what are some skills that I can gain here that will help me? And then the, the third part, which is probably the most important, is a change in attitude, right? Because if I dip down, I believe that higher weight people are lazy, then, you know, that, that would be difficult, but it's by changing that. And a big part of it is developing empathy and, 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 and compassion and being and listening to their voices. I didn't know before doing this research that, for example, finding clothes was an issue, mm-hmm. that people are walking outside and others yell at them from the car that people go for a hike and others say, good for you. <laughs> I don't know any of that, right? Because yeah. we don't have the experience of the more we listen, uh, validate and believe in their experiences, the more we're going to develop empathy and compassion, right? So that intrapersonal level is how can I change my thoughts, my knowledge, my beliefs, and my attitudes towards fatness, towards those in larger body. And that's pretty much the, the baseline and a lot of what our course is trying to accomplish. Yeah. yeah, and it's a good baseline to start at because if you change yourself, <laughs> it's going to help it better to get to the other layers. So can you talk about the interpersonal level? 
Yeah, so the interpersonal level target the relationship between the non-stigmatized people and the stigmatized people. So in this case, the exercise professionals and, you know, their clients. And I just, for the PE folks, I just did the same presentation. I'm doing this whole thing but for PE, which, which is about a very similar, right? So now how we, how do we actually intervene and change those relationships? And we find, you know, four main recommendations, one being, uh, creating a caring climate, um, that there's a lot that we can do from learning names to, uh, you know, actually showing interest in people's life and well-being to using inclusive language, for example, refraining from those, you know, those terms that I just mentioned about like, um, you know, let's burn calories or that, that you know, butter still or whatnot. The third is the idea of promoting holistic health, right? And I think that's a huge one, is the idea that physical activity can give so much to us. There was just a, a, a review published this week about physical activity being, showing evidence that it's helpful in depression treatment, right? So, like, there's so much to physical activity than weight loss, yeah. right? And how can we promote that holistic health and how can we refrain from promoting physical activity um, that is not for weight loss? Because obviously today I want to be active for so many reasons, but the last one is to lose any weight, right? Yeah. So that is that, um, it's that part. And then the fourth one is to create uh, diverse programming. And, you know, there are so many forms of movement available. I think you and others have discussed the idea of uh, movement culture, right? Mm -hmm. And how can we offer those and move away from, you know, the traditional things that are often offered. So that's the intrapersonal being the relationship between stigmatized and non-stigmatizing to create uh, an inclusive climate for everybody. Yeah. And, and the last one is the structural structural level. Uh, can you talk about that? So at the structural level, we want to look at organizational uh, strategies and making things um, the way we operate our, you know, fitness uh, programs and whatnot. And in that, the main one will be policy, right, to enact policy, to uh, follow policy and make it accountable, for instance, that, you know, um, bullying or any um, Verbal discrimination and whatnot is not accepted, zero tolerance, and there are consequences for that. And so a wide variety of policy. The other part is changing the environment, right? Do we really need a scale in every bathroom? Do we need it? Do we really need all those mirrors? How do we position the equipment? Are, are they accessible? How do we put things? What are the signs that we have in our gene, right? Uh, if we are selling uh, apparel, are we selling apparel of every size, right? What are kind of magazines that we have? So that is changing uh, that structure. Then the third part, so we got policies, we got changing the environment, offering equipment, right, offering treadmills and bicycles that can carry heavier uh, people. We do have the idea of making a commitment to leadership, right? And, and this notion that we find in the literature of Doing the work of diversity, inclusion, and equity 
not because somebody told us that it's nice, not because it's going to make good, but because we believe that is what we need to do, but because we believe that it's essential, but because we want people to be here. We want to include people, and we want them to be part of it. So how do we have that um, so increasing representation, right? Hiring people of diverse body sizes and hiring them for visible positions, right? Uh, also offering, including images of people with diverse body sizes and promotional materials, educational materials, right? So having, uh, expanding that representation and, and bringing others. And, you know, those things are doable, right? They at the structural level, they are sort of, you know, things that might take a little um, more commitment and whatnot, but but again, they are, they are things that will impact the other levels. Yeah. So if if an organization, right, with their cultural commitment to decide, for example, to use our course for onboarding training, right, that will definitely impact the intrapersonal level which might in turn impact the interpersonal level. Yeah. So, and I think you, you can get to this uh, when you talk about the health at every size paradigm. But I'm wondering, um, I, I teach a sociocultural issues and physical education class. And um, I, would, I would think, because I asked them to have these critical conversations, I would think if I brought this up saying that you know, places need to increase the representation of diverse bodies, including, you know, overweight bodies or people who are obese or fat or ho however we define them and adjusting the physical spaces and equipment. Um, I would think that at least one person or somebody would say what you brought up earlier in this podcast of, uh, well, you're just saying that being fat is okay. And that's not what I believe in. So how do you talk to a person who who comes at that in a way of saying, I don't want to change those because taking it as a mindset of they should get fit to fit these molds, right? They should lose weight so we don't have to adjust the world around it and we're being too soft on, on people because I, and I know that that conversation is out there. So how do you, how do you address a conversation like that? Well, so I began by saying yes, being fat is it's their life. It people have the fat the right to exist, right? To begin by that. Fat people have the right to exist with dignity and with respect and to receive care. So we're gonna begin from that like that is the big life. They have they don't own us tennis, they don't own us health, they don't own us anything. They have the life to exist as they are. Um that's one part. I, when it comes to physical activity, we are not physicians, we are not dietitians, we are movement experts. To me, we should stay in our lane and promote physical activity engagement by creating opportunities for people to feel confident and to enjoy moving their bodies, right? That's our job. I think we need to stay in our lane. Other people's, you know, their health, they discuss with their physician. And I, I think we step too much out of our lane in, into, into that. When I want to offer representation, it's because I want, uh, I see phenomenal movers and 
that are heavier, they have larger bodies. There is this woman who was a yoga instructor. She's a, 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 a black, fat woman. She's now sponsored by Adidas. She's a phenomenal yoga instructor, right? The Hawaii now has this this group of uh, curvy girls who are surfing, right? Now they are, they decided to go and say, we want to surf and we're going to create this group. And now all these women are able to surf with the bodies the way they are because you're not surfing to lose weight, right? Because the goal here is to get people to enjoy physical movement. Mm-hmm. In San Francisco, there's a group of larger skateboarders. They created a group so that they can skate free of discrimination. So I think... We are not the body police, right? That's not our job to be. And we are not here to change anybody's body, too, especially in physical education, given that we have zero evidence that we can do anything about that. And it should not. So that would be my answer, that, you know, people have the right to exist. As my job as a person who works with movement, I want that others have access to this. And instead of being a barrier by saying those things, by staying on the way, like how can we be a bridge and bring people closer to movement than away? Mm -hmm. And the weight loss conversation, right? That conversation might belong to a fitness, to a personal trainer, right? I, I don't, you know, or maybe, I don't know, a high schooler might ask a physical education teacher, like, hey, I want to lose some weight, and what should I do, right? Mm-hmm. In that way, that conversation might come. But I think our that's secondary to what we do. Yeah. And a good personal trainer and a good physical educator would encourage movement because what we know from research is that fitness will provide health benefits regardless of yeah. weight. And that's a good way to focus on. Yeah. It's to focus on what is I, I think that's a very, way. very good way to answer that. <laughs> so thank you. Um, so let's just, I think we've talked about the health at every size paradigm. Can you just uh, highlight that just real quickly of um, what that paradigm is and how, uh, how it can be used with fitness professionals? Yeah, so, so the health of every size, it's a movement that started, I think, it, I think it's in the 70s, late 70s, in response to the constant failures to lose weight, right? Uh, research shows that about 2% of people can maintain weight loss after, uh, you know, five years or something like that. So, so in response to that, in response to the, 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 the discrimination, it, it was a movement, right? Uh, the, the health of every size has five principles. Um, what it's a movement, right? That aims to promote body size acceptance, respect, appreciation, body size diversity. Um, the movement itself is currently going through some changes. The movement has Notice that a lot of the main spoken personal leaders were oftentimes thin people and white people, and there has been a movement to bring other voices to the conversation and to leadership, including uh, black, indigenous, people of color, people with disabilities, uh, 
people with diverse uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. So they are constantly reviewing their uh, principles. We used in our course, what we did was to expand in each of the principles. And I'm going to tell you what they are. So the first one is the notion of weight inclusivity that we want to accept and respect, right? As I mentioned before, the diversity of body sizes without idealizing some bodies, without rejecting other bodies, right? So that's the first principle is weight inclusivity. The second is health enhancement and how we can actually focus on access, focus on policies, focusing on, you know, tackling the social determinants of health uh, so that folks have access to health supporting behaviors. The next is respectful care, which is deals with weight biases, acknowledging that we all have biases, acknowledge that weight stigma exists, and how we can begin to understand uh, health, physical activity from a social ecological lens, from a lens that acknowledges intersectionality and how race, gender, orientation, abilities also intersect with weight, right, and put people in more disadvantaged positions. Then we have eating from well, eating for well-being, the notion of, you know, being flexible with eating and eating for pleasure, eating when you're hungry, uh, eating what it's able, we are able to afford and to do uh, with our lifestyles and whatnot, but being more internally regulated rather than externally regulated in terms of our relationship with food. And then last one is life-enhancing movement, which is the idea of supporting physical movement for people that have all sizes, abilities, interests, in ways that are uh, enjoyable. Yeah. And so those are the five principles. This is what we worked on. The movement is under, I would say, reconstruction. Uh, but it's trademark health at every size is trademarked by ASDA, the Association for Diversity and Health, and they are currently revising their curriculum, their principles and now. But uh, I particularly think those are helpful. And what we did in our course, which I can always, I can also share with you, if people are interested in taking our course, it's free, and I can share with you how to enroll in the course. It's a two-hour self-paced. And uh, and that's when we kind of expand in each of the principles. That is the kind of first part of the course. And then the second part of the course, we go about all the strategies in the levels that I just discussed with you. Awesome. And yeah, I, I think it would be great to share that if that's something that people can go through. We can we can put that in the notes. Um, so I'm going to skip that uh, next question and go into the last one as we kind of. Um, wrap this up. I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about the three messages that you learned while developing the weight inclusive thinking for fitness spaces project. Hmm. The three messages I've learned. <laughs> well, you know, I think the number one, it changed my relationship with my body completely. Um, so before that, I, I kind of understood that, you know, body image is something that it's a problem you have, right? It's something psychological there. Something went wrong and you have this body image project, right? And with this research, that all shifted, right? I kind of opened my eyes to see the message. Yeah. 
to travel all the way back to when I was a teenager and kind of track back all the messages I received. Obviously, body image is complex. It's not just, in fact, affected for that. That is also psychological and life events that will um, influence that. But that was liberating. Um, listening to the stories of discrimination that fat people go through, right, and make you see how privileged I am, mm-hmm. right, uh, that I go about my life and I've never been into any discriminatory situation for my size, it's humbling to say the least, um, because yes, I go to the doctor and I have a knee pain and they offer physical therapy, right? I get to sit on the plane, I go to places in their chairs for me, I can find clothes, whatever I want. So life is easier, right? And mm-hmm. when I saw that, the some of the body image issues start to you know fade because you're like, wait a minute, right? Look at myself, I'm a small person. So, so that was humbling for sure. Uh, just seeing the images, like we did a very diligent work to curate images of higher weight people living their lives happy and enjoying themselves to put in our course. And also by following those activists in social media. I, I, that So that had a tremendous impact on how I see my body and how I see bodies in general, right? And in how I perceive. So so that was, that was how that personal, individual impact. The second part is access. Access is everything, right? We need to give access. And what does that mean, right? Because access is just this physical access. Yeah, there's this program, economical access, but also psychological access, right? Mm-hmm. And how we can stop the barriers and being access. And what the research shows is that exercise professionals can act as barriers quite often, right? So how can we switch, right, from barriers to uh, to bridge builders? Um, That was the the second part. And then I think the third part is that it it was this work of interdisciplinary collaboration. This is when you start looking, learning about things you didn't know it didn't it even exist. And I think in that meeting we had the other day, right? Like so, we all are in higher ed. One example, right? And we say, oh, we can do online learning. Well, it wasn't until I worked with instructional designers that taught me that this interactive program existed, so we could create an interactive course. I had no idea this even existed until we were able to work with these people. So this, and that goes back to the Dauphine lecture that the problems we have in physical education today, perhaps, right, it might be worth a chance of zooming out, of working with other professionals, of bringing different expertise so we can try to solve these problems. I think Working with folks from different areas and different perspectives has just uh, allowed us to do this work and and to tackle a project. And now they are all involved in the work I'm doing with PE, mm-hmm. right? They are all involved in, and, and it was interesting the other day we were talking about, and, and my colleague was like, oh, I didn't even know that 
health education was taught by PE teachers, right? She didn't know that. Yeah. And she was surprised. And, and, and those are the conversations that we want to have with, by having this interdisciplinary approach, which is what Dr. Hannah did early in her career, and I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, awesome. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on, and I think you, you close out your, um, your lecture with uh, an Amanda Gorman uh, poet uh, laureate quote, and you said, uh, or the quote says, let us not return to what was normal but reach toward what's next. And I am excited to see what's next for you. Um, I think you're like, uh, I, and I think I said this either on the Peak Collaborative call or talk to you afterwards. Like, I'm just so, I get goosebumps when I see people do like really meaningful, cool work that is helping people. Not like, hey, here's this random study, a one-off study that, it's going to give me some theoretical perspective, but like actually working with fitness professionals who are in charge of changing the lives of people, sometimes negatively, you know, or like talking to PE teachers about changing their mindset for bettering the world. And I just think that there's, there's so much like good stuff with good people doing really cool projects like, like this. And, you know, for people who are listening and want to like, go through this module, you just put the link in. So weightinclusivethinking.com um, and I'll get you that to that page there. And it's just a awesome project. And I, I, I want to thank you for, for sharing it. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I, uh, I am grateful when I acknowledge my authors, Dr. Sammy Lee at California State University of Los Angeles, Dr. Don Clifford in Northern Arizona University. Uh, Dr. Jenna Fogasa at California State Long Beach, and uh, our rotating, we had rotating uh, students working with us, Juliana Liebman, um, and it, it's been uh, it's been a tremendous opportunity. It's hard, but we have found support in terms of funding, interest. We have had very positive feedback from um, campus rack folks. We, of course, we use the tool from the CDC to evaluate professional development courses, and we got very positive uh, feedback on that. I just did a session at SHAPE on waiting, creating courses, including climate and PE. The, the room was full. And, and to me, what that shows is that people are interested in this, like, that the, the ways we have done, as we said in the book, have not worked. Mm -hmm. They have gotten us here. So it's, I don't think it's too much special about us, but we just tapped, tapped into something that people need and want yeah. and i am hoping and in the upcoming years that we're going to come up with with the training and the materials for physical education because there's a lot there in the literature all we did was to organize them right yeah. so yeah. i mean there are tremendous researchers that have done this work and what we did was like let's organize all this and i want to do the same for Suzad and um provide that kind of support, but just very thankful, also very thankful to NACI, NERSA, and ASP, which is the Association for Applied Sport Psychology. Those three organizations funded our work. Um, I'm a current diverse fellow at Elton University, also got some support to do this work here, and the university has uh, also offered some funding, and we couldn't do it without uh, funding. 
So this has been also amazing. And to our instructional designers, uh, Carrie and Dee, who have been phenomenal in uh, supporting our project and getting us to where we are. So we gotta keep on keeping on. I'm also gonna add the link here to the registration of the course, because that's the website, but there is a process you have to follow to register. And I'm gonna also add that, link to that. And folks are super welcome to take our course for free. Awesome. And I'll, I'll take your course for free too. So thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks to Alba Rodriguez, as always, for her help in producing the podcast. And uh, we'll catch you next time. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.